0: Parent-clinician conflict is a common reason that clinical ethicists become involved in children's care. The genesis of the conflict is often quite early in the course of the child's illness, and the situation can build to a crisis when there's a difficult decision to be made. Welcome to Essential Ethics, and this episode, Exploring the Ethics of the Parental Role in Parent-Clinician Conflict. I'm Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital, Children's Bioethics Centre. Clinicians and ethicists have a traditional way of considering the problem confronting the child, using ethical concepts such as best interests and harm. But sometimes these can be morphed into an ethical sledgehammer to overpower the parents and enforce agreement on the next appropriate step. In the paper, Exploring the Ethics of the Parental Role in Parent-Clinician Conflict written by Associate Professor Bri Moore and Associate Professor Ros McDougall, They offer a different lens through which to see the problem and ideally find a fresh way to consider the conflict and manage a path to resolution. We are fortunate today to have with us, all the way from Texas, Associate Professor Bri Moore. Welcome, Bri.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for having me.
0: And all the way from the University of Melbourne, (laughs) Associate Professor Ros McDougall, also author of the paper, Welcome, Rose. Thanks very much, John. I'm going to ask you both, but Pry first, because you've come the furthest. (laughs) Pry, why did you write this paper?
1: A couple of reasons why this paper needed to be written, I felt. And one of them was just experience as an ethicist working on consults and receiving this kind of consult that would come in from some of our paediatric teams where we would hear things like, this family just doesn't get it, you know, just these expressions of just distress and frustration with the decisions that parents were making uh, with things that they were saying, the way that they were sort of acting in the unit. Um, and, you know, the, the team would consult us and say, you know, you've got to, you've got to make them understand that, that we can't keep doing this or just hurting their child at this point. And then I would go in and talk to the parents and leave my conversation with them just feeling like, what amazing parents I just spoke to and just this overwhelming feeling of just an impression of just how much they loved their child and how hard they were working to make what they thought were the best decisions they could and they had available to their family at that time. And just feeling like there was a fundamental misalignment in sort of where the team, how they were looking at things and then how the parents were feeling and how they were looking at things. So I think that was a big one, just trying to understand what what's going on here. Why do we have such different views of what should be done for the same child, um, often these parents were parents that had perfectly good understanding of the clinical information. What's the mis- misalignment here? Where does that come from? Um, and also thinking a lot about whether parents' reasons matter to the ethics of the decision and what ultimately we're allowed to, what kinds of decisions we allow for a child.
0: That's a very interesting point there, Bright, because I think often in conflict, we think that there's a clash of values, but you're not actually framing it as a, as a clash of values. It's a different perspective on mm-hmm. what's going on. It sounds like both sides are working hard, mm-hmm. but not understanding each other. Yeah. And then you've raised this wonderful idea of where the reasons matter. And I suspect some of our audience... Uh, would think of course reasons are really important uh, and that's something we might come to during the podcast because that's not always as obvious uh, as one might think. Ross, what about your experience? What drove you to join Brian writing this paper?
2: Uh, for me, two things as well made this, yeah, Bri was really pushing on an open door when she approached me about working on this together. So one was uh, a number of years back, Lynn Gillum and I had observed how when we were talking in a hospital context about conflicts, different views between clinicians and parents, there was a real asymmetry in the language. So we'd often hear or ourselves say about clinicians' judgments, Um, but parents seem to not have judgment. They seem to have wishes, Um, and so there'd be talk about overriding the parents' wishes, and it seemed at that point that there was a real asymmetry there in the ethical weight that we were giving um, to the different... Parties. So, to call something a judgment seemed to be much more worthy and ethically weighty, and a wish seemed a bit trivial. Whereas it seemed that actually, maybe parents were themselves also making judgments. They were doing some kind of ethical work in their thinking. So that idea of an asymmetry there in our language was um, I was already aware of. But the second um, motivator for me was an awareness that uh, when we're thinking about conflicts between doctors and parents or between clinicians and parents, that role really does matter. So I'd been seeing in a lot of the writing and discussion about different ways of thinking thinking through conflicts. So, you know, should we go with best interests? Should we go with a zone of parental discretion or a more harm-based kind of approach? There seemed to be starting to be some kind of sloppiness in these discussions about who exactly was making the decision, what type of decision it was, um, tools that were designed for clinicians or ethicists being suggested in a kind of judicial context. And so I was starting to get a bit antsy about that and thinking, hold on, the decision maker matters. It matters if it's a clinician making a decision or a clinical ethicist making a decision or a judge making a decision in a situation of conflict. They've got different roles, different ethical obligations associated with those roles. So we need to be aware of that. So when Bry, had these ideas about the parental role being another important role within that kind of uh, those kinds of ethical situations. I thought, yep, winner, let's unpack that. <laughs>
1: if, John, if I could just jump in too. Clinicians appeal to their role in an ethical way all the time to justify their judgments. That was, I think, one of the other key pieces for us is you'll hear doctors explicitly say things like, I cannot do that as a doctor. That is, out. like, you're asking me to violate my sense of being a good doctor. And what about when we hear parents make kind of parallel claims? What do we do with that?
0: I think there's so much uh, in that. But I think, though, that we, we don't necessarily hear parents making that, that parallel claim and parents um, don't speak ethics in the same way that doctors do. But, Ros, of course, what you're saying is that parents are doing ethics it's just needing perhaps the clinical ethicist or someone with an ear out for it to actually understand the thinking and the work that they're doing in an ethical sense. And for me, the overwhelming sound I can hear are the pennies dropping, <laughs> just with the, with the way you've explained it and understanding it. And that so we've talked of a sort of mismatch of, of, of roles uh, rather than. Um, a giant mismatch of values, perhaps, which is sort of the start of the paper. So why don't we anchor this in a case? Um, and in the paper, uh, Ros and Briar, you've written, you've put a sample case, which is an amalgam, and it reads, you know, very true uh, to me of the sort of cases that we might uh, get called into as clinical ethicists. So you've named the baby, Baby J, and was born at 26 weeks gestation, but is now 50 weeks uh, old but still in the neonatal intensive care unit for continuous cardiorespiratory monitoring, provision of respiratory support, tube feedings, as well as total parenteral nutrition and intravenous fluids. And since delivery, she's developed severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia or chronic neonatal lung disease and has experienced several setbacks, including numerous infections secondary to bouts of pneumonia and is now quite resistant to various antibiotics. Said frequent episodes of bowel dilatation and distension of unknown origin. Baby J's prognosis is extremely poor. We might actually come and try and unpack that <laughs> at some stage here. Uh, and the parents are at the I end mean, at the bedside regularly, particularly in the earlier part of the hospitalisation. But since then, have returned to work to keep the household running. They visit ba- baby J together most weekends, and one of them sometimes comes in on uh, a weeknight. They receive daily updates from the team, usually by phone. And currently, baby J has developed another respiratory infection and experiencing multiple episodes of oxygen desaturation. During the neonatal intensive care team's weekly review about baby J and some of the other complex cases, they, the team expressed concern, well, at least some of the team do, expressed concern about the ongoing treatment of baby J who has a very poor prognosis and what it means for each of these interventions that baby J is receiving. We speak, as the clinical ethicist, to the neonatologists and some of the nurse practitioners caring for baby J and they state that despite multiple discussions since the onset of this last infection, the parents just aren't getting it, in inverted commas, and all this is going nowhere. And we're just hurting her. And that baby Jay's parents insist that she's overcome every setback so far. And they still believe that they'll be able to take her home with just a little bit more time. Her parents say they can't imagine on giving up on her. The neonatologists say you need to talk to them and get them to understand that there's no way out of this. So, Bri, you're uh, are Australian by nationality and accent, <laughs> but you're practicing in Texas. Mm-hmm. Is, is this how it runs? Is this what happens? Difficult case? Neonatologist says to you, just uh, make them think like us.
1: Yeah. And I hope that doesn't read as uncharitable to my colleagues, because I think that is very real distress when you feel like you're stuck and there's no exit strategy. There's no way to move forward with, with the child's treatment we can't go back like it just that is very real but yeah I call this the kind of get the dnr type consult where it's like we have an idea of what the appropriate decision is and the team has tried to move parents towards that and then eventually we the ethics team will get consulted and pulled in with the idea that somehow we're going to go in there and change the parents minds and convince them that this is the right thing to do and they need to align with this plan so yes it does it is a type of consult that we that we get, yes. I
0: mean, I think it's not entirely different uh, in Australia and all over the world when you look at the literature. It may be not always stated quite as obviously as that, but I think the undercurrents there, Ros, and I we think we've been in these situations uh, here too. Ros, what do you see in, in this case, though, as the, as the ethical issues?
2: So there's really a lot going on ethically in a case uh, like... This little baby. Firstly, there's worries about non beneficial treatment, um, so often, you know, futility. Um, I hesitate to say it. So, worries about uh, on the clinician side about the what are the actual benefits to this baby of the treatments that we're doing and whether those treatments are in fact burdensome to the child? Are they creating suffering um, with no um, well, without sufficient benefit to justify that suffering or burden? And as Bryce said, I think a really important ethical issue in the case is the moral distress of staff um, and that's Uh, real and important, that experience of feeling that you know what the ethically right pathway is, but you just can't make it happen. Um, And I think it's important to recognise that within that case too. And then it sounds like uh, a breaking down of trust and communication has sort of reached an impasse. um, And that's where ethics has been called in.
0: Thanks, Roz. I think you know the hesitation in your voice when you're talking about things like futility and and suffering is because you know particularly futility is very hard to to define, and it can be where there are different values um, that we yet haven't quite explored in the case um, can come up, and and I think suffering too is it can be used um, as a weapon yeah. um, to 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 make. People feel bad for the decisions that that they're doing. So, you know, for the audience listening, those are our concerns. But I also think sort of, sort of, it's um, uh, it's a lack of words in English to actually uh, cover those uh, uh, cover what we mean by those uh, by those things. It's interesting though. A lot of this is framed in terms of sort of staff centric. Terms and the interesting thing in the case as well is there's not a clear single life-limiting condition. Chronic neonatal lung disease will improve with time as the airways and the mm-hmm. alveolar septation, and if the GI
1: stuff will resolve, and there's some uncertainty for sure.
0: Yeah, um, but there's a sense that overall life is going to be hard, and that's the experience of, of, of clinicians, um, and the suffering to get there uh, maybe not matching um, the reward. Bro, although you're from Texas, and there are rules in Texas of overriding parents' wishes or people's wishes, I don't think this is a case where you can just override people's wishes, and that has harms in itself, doesn't
1: it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, the threshold for sort of overriding parents for state intervention, sort of removing or suspending their decision-making powers, is really the harm principle. Doug Deakman's harm principle is really kind of still, I think, the accepted standard. You have to be. The child has to be at serious risk of significant harm. And I don't know that we would have met that threshold in a case like this. I think with the medical uncertainty coupled with the swirling mass of values that are probably influencing people's judgments, the fact that we thought these were reasonable treatments when we started them, um, parents aren't exactly refusing recommended medical treatment, which is usually really where that threshold lies. I don't think we're there yet. So I could see... A, a situation like this, certain members of the team wanting to push or follow, like start to go down that route. But I think as an ethicist, I wouldn't, that wouldn't be acceptable for yeah, <laughs> something you we would do. Right. And, and it strikes case.
0: me too yeah. that, you know, with this with the, the sort of swirling values and we're going to sort of start talking about roles because that's what your wonderful paper is, is about, but there's actually still a lot of work to be done
1: mm-hmm.
0: here before we might even get to that situation. Absolutely. But we do have a traditional way of thinking about these things, don't we? And Brian, you've mentioned um, the harm principle being really where somebody is you know, a decision maker we 've agreed who the decision maker is wants to do something that is very clearly harmful to the interests of of, of that person in this case, a child, so we haven't decided that. What about some other ways that we might traditionally think about this sort of case
1: yeah so and again to your point, John earlier we don't always hear these expressed in exactly these terms, but we still rely very heavily on the idea of the child's interests, the child's best interests and as I know I'm looking you both you both know that you know there are different ways of interpreting the best interest standard, but there is general acceptance that we should make decisions that optimize or promote the child's interests, and we have a good idea that most children have an interest in life, health, safety, security, loving relationships, the ability to grow and play you know like there are some widely accepted interests um and the best interest standard over time has broadened to have more of a like biopsychosocial lens to it. It's not just medical interests anymore. There's general, I think, agreement that that's a good thing to guide decisions for children with. Uh, And then, like I mentioned, the harm principle, this idea that we should really only override parents' decisions when they're refusing recommended treatment and and it puts their child at significant risk of serious harm. And Doug Diegman's influential paper where he kind of maps out, I think it's eight considerations that kind of help us apply that in practice, And then obviously I'm looking at Roz's own parental discretion, hers and Lynn's and Claire's and your own work on kind of putting the harm principle into practice, but also having kind of a broader lens and talking about suboptimal decisions that we still allow um, because we, give, we let parents parent in different ways and we may not agree with all of the decisions, but sometimes suboptimal decisions are okay. Uh, So those are, again, like most of the tools that we use. uh, Lainey Ross's constrained parental autonomy. There is a lot of discussion of the parental role in pediatric ethics. And I think we get the authority associated with the parental role a lot. But part of why we wanted to dig into the role ethics is to really think about what kind of ethics is going on with the roles and what kinds of values do parents hold? How does it guide their behavior? Not just because it has social or legal value, but like what else is going on in the role?
0: So that's really important stuff. So it it seems like a lot of the cases, and maybe with good clinical practice and basic ethical training, things like best interests and centering the child, considering how actually harmful this is, Mm -hmm. and recognising parents as legal and natural decision making. It factors into things and and probably a lot of the work of of ethics might be done before a clinical ethics service is called through Mm -hmm. these uh, elementary tools, if you like. But when it's more complex, and as you say, there's not a clear path forward, then sometimes that's In conflict, and you mentioned the zone of parental discretion, and I'd just like to explore that just for a moment before we get into the the hub of the nub and the hub of the paper, which is which is the roles. So, so Roz, just for our listeners, you want to just let us know how the zone of parental discretion sort of brings some of those ideas together.
2: So the zone of parental discretion is an ethical tool that's specifically for thinking about these entrenched disagreements between clinicians and parents. And the key idea is that you're trying to balance two really important values. So one of the values is the child's wellbeing, understood in the broad kind of way that Bryce highlighted And the second value is parents as decision-makers. So there's lots of good ethical reasons why parents are the default decision-makers for their children. Um, They usually know their children best. They're the ones who bear the consequences of decisions made. And so there's lots of good ethical reasons to support the value of parents as decision-makers. So what the Zone of Parental Discretion tool is trying to do is balance those two things of child's wellbeing and parents' as decision makers. And the key idea is that parents don't have to make the decision that clinicians think is in the best interest of the child. So parents can make decisions that are kind of suboptimal from a clinician perspective, but only to a... A certain threshold. And the threshold is probable harm to the child. So parents can make suboptimal decisions. They can't make harmful decisions. And so the idea of that type of tool is to help think through, uh, for clinicians and clinical ethicists, um, to think through, okay, is this parental choice one that's not ideal from our perspective, but it's not so bad um, that it should be overridden, so allowing parents um, scope to make suboptimal but not harmful decisions.
0: Because overriding the parents' decisions comes with a whole new set of harms, too. So, and that's been a very, very helpful tool. And in some ways, it does a bit more of the work here than the, simply the uh, simply those uh, best interests or harms or parental authority um concepts alone so it brings them together but i don't think it's going to do all the work here is it Um, and and i think what you've said in the paper is that these being the the principles and the zone don't address the psychology of the disagreement and i think that that actually is really important um, for the clinicians to, to think about what's going on and understand it more deeply and obviously for the for the parents to feel that they've been heard and listened and understood.
2: Yep. I think to me, all the tools that we've spoken about so far, so zone of parental discretion, harm principle, best interest standards, they're all quite analytic kind of tools. So they're really in the kind of super cognitive philosophy ethics parts of our brains. And I think there's a lot more going on as well that it helps to open up our thinking about and I think that that aspect is somewhere where the roles idea can really help and it supports
0: one of the things that you know I've been coming to uh, Roz, is that you know part of the work um, of the ethics so is bioethics which is where those principles and perhaps the zone of parental discretion comes and gets you so far but the other half which is what clinical ethicists do is is how and how do you make the magic happen, and I think that's when getting into the psychology of the situation the, and what we're going to talk about is the parental role actually allows us to do the the other part of the work of, of bioethics. I'm seeing lots of vigorous nods. So thank you for supporting my theory. Uh, it's really good. So, um, bro, you started to mention constrained parental authority, which is not which is a Laney Ross' idea. So it's not which is not just Parents as decision makers, but something a little bit more in that. But I think what I'm seeing that doing is start to focus on the parents and thinking more deeply, mm-hmm. uh, leading us into roles. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah, I think that concept really starts to centre parents and the role that they're in, and just the, the idea that things typically go best if we let if we give parents a pretty wide amount of discretion and that we just let them make decisions to raise children in the ways that they want to and that that might look really different for different families. Yeah, I think Lainey Ross's work is probably, for me at least, the work that really sets the stage to explore and to reflect on the parental role a bit more. But to one of Ross's earlier comments, I don't know that any of these concepts help us understand what's going on underneath a disagreement necessarily. They're quite consequentialist in nature, like very focused on, well, do things go best if we allow this person to make decisions? Or what's the effect on the child? That's our guiding principle or value. And that's really important. And our goal in this paper is definitely not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and stop using those concepts in practice. But we were really interested in like, but what's going on underneath? Why, do, why are we looking at this so differently to parents sometimes? Um, and I'm using we as like the team, the clinical team.
0: But it sounds like I think we're needing in these circumstances to, to lead the, the the clinical team and support them in this understanding. So mm-hmm. there are, seem to be various ways of conceptualising or understanding the, the parent role, Bri. So how, how do you think of it or How you know, have you got into it to understand it better?
1: Yeah, so we share a little bit just about the process of pulling this paper together. We hemmed and hawed about how much we would kind of try and present like a theory of what good parenting is, and we decided we wanted to steer very clear of that and remain very open about what it means to be a good parent. We didn't want to kind of say there's only one way to be a good parent. And looking at the literature, there's all kinds of aspects of good parenting that are discussed out there. And I think there's a line in the paper that I love that came from Roz, I think, and there's a spectrum, right, from like, oh, he's kind of okay, like, this is the world's best dad. Like, it's an open thing. um, And I think we benefit from having just very different models of parenting out there, but we do see at least in the empirical literature on good parent beliefs and how, what they look like in in healthcare when a child gets sick, how they're sort of operationalized by parents in their thinking. The major themes around parents' understanding of their role, we see some pretty core things. The empirical work that's out there, key parental good parent belief domains. Um, Things like parents' value, feeling informed, um, feeling like they're able to express love for their child, showing commitment, dedication, um, maintaining family cohesiveness. These are some of the things we talk about in the paper. Um, There are a lot of different studies. They all come back to sort of some of the main themes and parents want to feel like they're protecting their children, preserving whatever their relationship with their child looks like in this new setting in the hospital. And then... Ros is so modest about it, but did some early work, earlier work on parental virtues. It's really not something that a lot of people have written about. But that work also is sort of more from a virtue ethics kind of theoretical background. And Ros talks again about committedness, lovingness. Uh, Ryan Tonkins builds a lot on that too. Um, about honesty, about courage. You have to be brave to be a parent. It's scary, right? you know, there are these qualities that we recognize as being valuable. If you're going to be a parent, they help you survive raising and caring for children. Um, So I think that's all to say there's a lot of variation, but there are some consistent threads sort of across different parents from different backgrounds in different settings. And some of it is sort of demonstrated in the great empirical work that's out there on good parent beliefs. And then some of it is really reflected in a lot of our kind of theoretical frameworks and sort of more traditional ethical theories as well.
0: It's uh, so interesting to think about such wide scope for parents uh, to be parents. And just looking at the case and the way you've written you know, the case, the parents are there and, and been close by the bedside doing what they can. And of course, it's, it's a tragedy when parents you know, sometimes can't even put their hand through the hole in the humidity crib to hold the baby's uh, hand. And what's denied them is as, as parents. And the fact though, that they've had to leave. And when you talk about courage, I actually think that, that we could express that as courage because you know we didn't talk about how many other siblings, but let's imagine there's two other siblings and they're tired of living with the grandparents or the neighbours and parents have got to go home and maintain a stable home. And, they've got and bills to pay. Yep. All sorts of things, but actually leaving your kid
1: and to the care of others, yeah, yeah. To
0: to do that, and I've had my kids in hospital. I'm not leaving for a moment, um, for for both for the kid and to watch what's uh, going on. So I think, in fact, as you've written it, they are demonstrating quite a number of of the virtues. Um, so do you think, Roz, that what you're describing is this is this virtue ethics in play?
2: I think it certainly is drawing on virtue ethics. So I think to my mind, the best kind of clinical ethics. So one of the great things about clinical ethics is that we don't need to solve any grand philosophical arguments about which is the best ethical theory and what in fact is the criterion of right action. It's, to my mind, it's absolutely fine in a clinical ethics context to draw on consequentialist thinking. It seems obviously important that the consequences for the child, the family, the clinicians are important, but also to draw on other types of thinking. Um, so virtue ethics thinking where we're looking at, okay, what are the character traits that are important? So if a consequentialist criterion of right action is, okay, what's the pathway with the best consequences? Uh, virtue ethics criteria of right action will be, what would a virtuous person do in this context? So it might be, if we're thinking about more kind of general community ethical behaviour, then it might be virtuous person. But if we're thinking about clinical decisions, it might be virtuous doctor or virtuous nurse or um, virtuous genetic counsellor, what would a good genetic counsellor do in this situation, or it might be what would a good parent do. So I think that drawing on those kind of uh, more virtue-based character kind of understandings of ethics can bring a richness to our discussions and our thinking in clinical ethics that's really useful and important alongside that obviously and quite intuitively i think easier uh, consequentialist type thinking so ros it
0: sounds to me like the reasons parents are acting like they're acting m- makes a difference it matters Yep. Do you think
2: so? I know I'm waiting to very controversial territory here. <laughs> Good. Thinking about do You're not alone. It's okay. Oh, I'm moving uneasily in my seat. <laughs> so I think that what matters in the kinds of situations that we're talking about today, reasons matter a bit in the sense that parents' reasons need to have significant traction with the child's interests. So if parents are making decisions for reasons that don't seem to relate to the child's interests, then that really matters because that's the kind of situation where you're starting to think, hold on, do are parents acting in ways that would justify them having this parental role and this... Uh, parent as decision maker. If, if they're not making choices where the child's interests or the interests of the family are pretty central, then that puts a big question mark over that. So I think that reasons are important in that sense, definitely. But for me, I'm more looking for what's the connection between the parent's reasoning and the child's interests, or the, it might be broader than the child's interests. It might be about their family more broadly. So I think that um, as you are highlighting the the challenge of leaving a child at the bedside, um the way that parents are having to balance the well-being of all the members of their family is a huge part of being a parent and doing that well is a huge part of being a good parent, and I think that's one of the really key differences between the demands of a parental um the parental role and a clinician um thinking about the same child who appropriately just has that particular child patient at the centre of their thinking. I
0: think that's really important, uh, Ros, because we have have had situations uh, where, uh, you know, where parents haven't acted, you know, where their motivations seem to be coming from somewhere else. So situations where, for example, as long as the baby's in the intensive care unit, um, one of the parents won't be going to jail. So it strikes me in those situations that their moral authority to be the decision makers, is diminished substantially? Is is that where you're... And and the reverse, the more their virtuous actions and ideas and articulated sentiments about the best interests of the child and the child and their family come out, then the easier it seems to be to take them seriously or, or allow them to maintain that important parental role. Is that...?
2: Yes, I think that's right. And reflecting what you were saying, Bri, earlier about your impression coming away from a discussion with parents, that these are parents who are really well-motivated, who are loving and caring, uh, that makes you think differently about the decisions that they're making, the rationale behind them and so on. So, yeah, I think that's right.
0: And it's interesting here because we talked about the courage of the family, you know, having to go and get on with their. Life or the practicalities of that, but another way that you framed that in the in the paper was surrendering their role uh, as the normal protector, carer, feeder, supporter, and leaving that to to someone else. And, and I can see by parents struggling with that, yep. sort of a fundamental thing, isn't it? Yep.
1: That- and I think I don't I can't remember if we use this phrase in the paper, but you know this idea that when a child becomes sick, you move into the clinician space and this is kind of our house, our rules mentality sometimes. And it's parents who have to learn how to be a parent in this, for most parents, a completely new environment. They don't expect that their kid is going to get really sick or if they do, they have to, they have to figure it out on the fly and adapt. And that's a huge ask. And then again, like trusting, you know, when I leave today, will my child be okay? Will they be here when I get back? Like that's huge. Um, so I think again, part of the motivation for the paper was just to encourage clinicians and ethicists not to lose sight of the just how huge that is. It's a huge ask, and it's parents that ultimately have to live with whatever happens. Clinicians do too, but I think not not quite in the same way.
0: So it's, it's, now we're getting where, we, where we've sort of established the the, the parental. Role and the sort of rules around those virtuous rules, if you like, preconditions at which they get to be parents and decision makers and and, and taken seriously versus what we were alluding to at the beginning, or was the roles of the clinician uh, who are obviously very obvious to the to the clinician. Do you think that that's it, isn't it? There's this this can be this clash of roles, and that parent is in the clinician's house,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's hard for the, both sides to see what's going, see what's going on. Yep. What's the way around this? Well, how, how do you manage that in, in your consult? Because you've come away from having seen a family like baby Jay and you thought, my goodness, what super parents and what, a, what a wonderful things they're doing in the face of all of this. Mm-hmm. And you've got the, the, the clinical team saying, well, we're getting more and more reluctant to keep doing all these, mm-hmm. all these things. And neither seem to understand each other's role. How do you manage that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is such an ethicist answer. It depends on the case, yeah, but um, and I wanted to clarify, too, like the clinicians' role is obviously super important too. So we're not saying all well, parents' role, parental virtues, parental beliefs and preferences trump everything. We're certainly not saying that. What for me is sort of the funny thing that happens when you're an ethicist. You know, the team will consult you and one of your first sort of information gathering steps will be to try and understand from the whoever consulted you, like what's going on, you know, tell me a little bit about the situation. And we'll often hear things like this family's so difficult and like we can't work with them. And then I'll go in and I'll think, God, I had the best conversation I've ever, this family's lovely, like they're so easy to talk to. And you'll go back and sort of tell whoever consulted you that and they're like, what family were you talking to? Like, so I think part of it is some really deep questions in here about the role of the ethicist but i think one of them is to come back to, to something we were talking about a little bit earlier like to promote empathy and just it's we don't have to move one person to agree with the other but if we can move everyone a little closer to the middle um by just normalizing and validating everyone's experiences of their roles reassuring everyone yes what what your your obligations what your focused on is really important what the parents are thinking about and focused on is really important to how can we see and respect one another um and that comes through conversation you have to get people at the table talking to each other I think these cases get really hard when there's not trust um and I think sometimes you have to ask is there anything we can do to rebuild that trust and sometimes there's not and I think for me at least deference to parents is usually the default um Or we wait until there's a change in the child's condition and then we revisit things. Um, It depends on the case, yeah. But I think it's just encouraging clinicians to remember, like, these are parents in an incredibly challenging situation. You don't have to agree with them, but something as small as as encouraging the team to praise the parents. Like, hey, I love how you're kind of holding her or, like, you know, just help them to validate the parental role in whatever way they can. I think that those can be really important baby steps towards kind of getting everyone back in alignment.
0: It's so important, isn't it? Because it sounds like there's this, um, it's sort of like a a role, a power imbalance in the role and clinicians have their role, which seems to be the most important thing when you're trying to just even it up um, a little bit. Do you think the parents should have some sympathy or empathy towards the clinician's role, which isn't necessarily easy? Are we asking too much? Is that a fair question to ask No,
2: I I think that's a very fair question. I think that the way that the sort of structure of the situation is set up, it's already the case that um, doctors or clinicians have um, a well set out role and under, there's a kind of social understanding of what a good doctor looks like or what a good nurse looks like and so uh, there's a kind of existing level of respect and authority that they have in that space which I think is different for parents um, and I think we see that in that in that language asymmetry that I mentioned that uh, if parents just have wishes <laughs> um then their views aren't given, are given a different type of weight, um, which is not to go down a kind of doctor bashing route. I don't want this paper to be seen as a kind of... And it doesn't come
0: through, is is that... Because
2: for for me, the argument that we're trying to make or the extra element that we're trying to add to the type of consult that Bri's talking about is the idea that bringing a role-based lens encourages clinicians to see parents' decisions as ethical decisions, just like their own decisions are ethical decisions. And to see that just brings a kind of evenness back into this very fraught, emotional, challenging impasse. And if we can. Just if that's the only element that we add then I think that's a really important element in itself just seeing parents as trying to make uh, do as doing ethical work just as clinicians are doing ethical work in their decisions.
0: Because the practice you're describing Brian is a bit different from how we've traditionally been practicing uh, here at Royal Children's and and I think around Australia with you know you're going as a clinician individual, consult that might come to a bigger team or or bigger ethics team or or might not. Whereas we'll usually be supporting the clinician rather than obviously the parent, although the idea is to support the whole situation. Mm -hmm. um, But
1: primarily through the clinical team as opposed to the ethicist going into the room. But we'll also be
0: trying to bring this lens of understanding um, the parent. And I think our social workers often will be coming and trying to do to do that too, mm-hmm. do you, are you? Do you think you're just translating the work the parents are doing into ethics, or do you see also that you might be
2: coaching them in thinking in ethics terms? I'll have a crack first, bro. I'll be interested to hear what you've got to say on this. For me, I think it's the first one. I think the parents already do ethical work, even if they don't frame it in ethical language, just like I think uh, clinicians who haven't been specifically engaged in ethics training or clinical ethics services still do ethical work. Um, so for me, it's holding a mirror up to the ethical work that they're doing, and but I don't think it's coaching them to do anything differently to what they're already doing.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I I think we don't give parents enough credit sometimes for – like sometimes I'll go into the room and introduce myself as the ethicist and they get immediately why I'm there and what I mean by ethics and what my role is and I'll talk to them a little bit about that. A lot of parents I think completely understand like they'll talk about suffering or you know, they will appeal to concepts that we recognize as important ethical concepts doing work. They'll, they'll get that immediately and I think we don't always give them enough credit – um, so I agree with Roz. One of my worries in holding up this mirror is that, you know, I think it's one thing when parents offer this kind of role-based reason or any kind of reason, but it's another to demand or expect that kind of reason from families that maybe aren't confident in expressing themselves or there are language barriers or other kinds of communication barriers, you know, and we're kind of like, why not you, you know... <laughs> why aren't you able to express this? And if you just could, then the team would be more understanding or sympathetic, you know? So I think that's one of the things that worries me about this. And I want to make clear, we're not kind of saying that parents should be able to express some kind of role-based ethic, but I agree with Roz that I think they often are living it and demonstrating it all the time in small ways and big ways. Um, So I think we're just translating it and maybe putting it into some recognizable shared language for the team and the, and the parents and that's a really important part of why we're in the room and why we're trying to help I think
0: and i mean i think ideally too is we start to train clinicians to consider the their role and the parents role and then perhaps if the initial conversations way back at the beginning are including this in respect for the parents' parents and what they're able to do um, will hopefully foster some um, a, agreement along the way. But you do raise in your paper some objections to this model. So um, what do you see as the risks, Bri, of this parent lens?
1: I'd be amiss, uh, amiss not to mention that these are John Massey objections. Like These really, I think, <laughs> came from some early comments from you, John, on the paper, and we realised we were like, we've got to have an objection section based on all the comments that John gave us. So that's like I would... You should probably talk about the objection <laughs> section, but I. it was really important for us that um, when we were drafting this paper that it, we had a clinician's feedback on it because, again, we didn't want to seem like we were doctor bashing or that we were suddenly in this, like, anything goes, whatever the parents say because they're parents and, you know, we didn't want to fall into that. But I think that's one of the worries here. Like, if you start to kind of say, well, good parenting can be pretty much anything – If we really care about the parental role and the parental role ethic, then we give parents pretty much like really widely way to make any kinds of decisions. You know, it starts to feel a little bit like, well, what about the child, right? Like there's this risk that good parent beliefs, whatever they are, that it pulls us away from what our focus really should be, which should be the child, right? Like they are at the center of it. So I think there is this risk and we were wary, I think, as we wrote this paper about like, what does this mean in practice? You know, is it going to broaden what the zone of parental discretion? Is it kind of going to drop that threshold a little bit lower? Are we okay with that? So I think that's a very legitimate concern. And I would say, again, our, our response to it is we're not saying anything goes, but thinking about the parental role may not change ultimately what we think is ethically permissible or impermissible, but the extra layer is really just stopping and appreciating that parents are trying to be good parents, whatever the outcome is. um, And just acknowledging that much like we would if, you know, a clinician, we ended up not kind of doing what they thought was the right thing, but perhaps they were deciding with a lot of care and a strong sense of that they were trying to do their job well, we could at least validate and acknowledge that. Um, So I think that's the first main objection was just (laughs) anything goes, like, what are you going to do if the parent's start pulling things in a direction that's really far away from the child's interests. Um, I think another one is just that, isn't this just a form of post hoc rationalization or something? I think that kind of gets, John, to maybe your question about um, coaching or, oh, look, we can kind of almost fit any anything into this framework. So how is it actually the right kind of thing to be using then if it's just picking something that parents have said and sort of smooshing it into a role ethic, you know, that doesn't seem to be the best thing to kind of guide, guide our practice with. Um, and the other one I think is it's just, if we are going to have a very broad sense of good parenting, how do we operationalize that in practice or what do different virtues look like? Parental virtues look like in practice? Um, maybe something that's a virtue outside of the hospital becomes quite problematic inside inside the hospital um, or as a child gets sicker I and mean, parents are kind of holding on to something out here. So again, I think it's just, this is a kind of bigger critique of virtue ethics sometimes just, okay, we've got a general idea of what a virtue is, but w- what's the the appropriate middle, the golden mean? Like, what does it actually look like? Or how do you, how do you, Cultivate that virtue. What does that look like for different parents? So I think there's a kind of just some pra- very reasonable, serious, practical objections to this that we tried. I don't know how- <laughs> so yeah, I think we tried to try to navigate in the paper, and I think
0: you've succeeded in doing that. And as you uh, as you mentioned that, it, it strikes me that that Roz, you've articulated quite clearly, you know, three very important virtues that perhaps are, are central. Um, so committedness, acceptingness, and future-orientatedness. Yeah,
2: they really roll off the (laughs) tongue. They do. (laughs) That was one of the first things you said to me. You're like, why did I – (laughs) I wish I'd named those.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I think – You'd, because virtue ethics can be so broad and, and Ryan Tompkins has then you know, expanded all of those and you can see that in some of the, uh, the people that uh, you reference in the empirical work. But if, if we actually narrow those down and put them under those categories of committedness, acceptingness of, of what life might be like for this little one and future-orientedness, I think then that can make it actually very practical and and workable. I am interested I'm always interested in us writing our own narratives rose that we just backfill with a bit mm-hmm. of ethical mm-hmm. rationale and uh uh here we could do that easily they're they're mm. good they're good parents and they're trying hard.
2: Yep. Yep. Certainly um any of my students listening to this will know All of your students who are listening to this. (laughs) I'm not a big fan of ethics language as a way of rationalising our initial gut feeling. (laughs) So here's our gut feeling and now I've got lots of sophisticated ethics language that I can use to make it look really solid. So that's not what we're trying to achieve here. I think, to me, think adding this kind of role-based lens to this particular type of situation is trying to reorient so that clinicians are asking, okay, how can we care for this patient in a way that helps these parents to feel that they're fulfilling their responsibilities to the child? So to me, that's a really practical question that's how you take this kind of virtuesy idea and make it really practical in the clinical ethics consult is how can we care for them in a way that enables the parents to feel like and not just feel like but actually be doing their good parent um, role in their own eyes. So could I just challenge you? I'm going to one more poke at the
0: poke <laughs> at the bears here. Um, We're ready. <laughs> yeah, well, Roz, you're a koala bear. But, well, I guess you are too, <laughs> so you're both pretty tame. Um, but at the end you say we, we can shift the parent's perception of what a good parent would do, such that parents are comfortable entertaining other possibilities, options n- and choices. And I, I do like that, but I still worry that you're trying to shift the parents to the clinician's views.
2: Am I worrying too much? No, it's good to worry. Um, I think that it's really important to be aware of that as a worry. So the way the kind of social structure of the hospital works is very much... um, uh, the clinician, there is a power imbalance in that clinicians have more power in that situation than parents. Um, And so being aware of that um, and, yeah, opening up thinking about That power imbalance about what the parents are trying to achieve, what ethically matters about what the parents are trying to achieve, just opening up that thinking, I think, is what we're trying to um, encourage in that paper. So it's not any kind of radical change in practice or asking clinicians to think differently or throwing out the zone of parental discretion or any of that. To me, it's just an extra layer of thinking in a particular type of situation that helps recognise what the parents are trying to do.
1: Yeah. And if I can jump in and add to that, I think maybe we could have expressed that part of the paper a little bit better, but... The idea in kind of normalizing and validating parents kind of, and when I say normalizing, I mean like letting parents know that like it's okay whatever decision you make, you're not a bad parent. We're not going to judge you if you do decide now in a month, in three months that you do want to stop something, you're still a loving parent. So like just, I think parents really need to hear that sometimes. And so that part of the paper wasn't to kind of say that, We would say, well, good parents would choose this as well. So, you know, maybe you should think about choosing that and there and kind of align parents with what the clinicians were recommending. But really just tell parents, like, we see you. We see how much you love your child. There are no wrong decisions here. Um, Good parents would make all kinds of decisions. We're going to keep checking in with you about what feels right to you and your family. So, And that's normalizing and validating this work that we do in all kinds of consults across pediatric and adult settings as ethicists. And I think for some parents, their beliefs and what's what they can sort of see themselves doing and actually do is going to be quite fixed. But for other parents, it might be more fluid over time. And we see that in the empirical literature too. So yeah, just just reminding everyone that we may be in a gray zone and there are a range of permissible things. Um,
0: I mean, Bri, I think you've expressed that very nicely. And in fact, if any of our listeners want to read a really beautiful paper about that written by Jenny O'Neill, who's now our CNC in bioethics, about the uh, difficult decisions she had to make um, with very premature newborn, I think, really brings uh, that out. And that was, was written before Jenny had had formal ethics training and the language of ethics, but the work of ethics was all being done there. So we're, we're nearly at the end. And, and I think, you know, one of the, the wonderful lines, and there are so many, Bri, I'm just poking you because that's job of academic rigor and me <laughs> easy to ask the questions. But you, you you say that the role-based approach brings understanding of divergent views. And I think that's one of the things that I really took away. But also that this is, to me, seems like a type of empathic curiosity or could be, which Jodie Halpern, who was one of uh, our international speakers at last year's conference uh, spoke about, and we've recently released a podcast of Jodie's talk, but trying to understand the other person's perspective. And it cuts both ways to the parents, as you're highlighting here, and you're focusing on the parents because of that imbalance, but also then clinicians also need to think about their
2: role. Uh, Empathic curiosity sounds an awful lot like a doctor virtue or a clinician virtue. So it's a character trait. It's a way of engaging in the in the world, um, and to that extent, I think draws on that type of ethical thinking. You're always accumulating more virtues, <laughs> uh, yeah. Roswell. Well, uh,
0: Brian Ross, thank you very much for a fantastic uh, podcast and also for taking us deep into this really what is, I think, a very wonderful paper and going to, uh, hopefully our readers will read it and recommend it uh, to their friends and their colleagues because there's a lot to be learned from the paper. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. Thanks, John.
0: And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating and share it with your friends and colleagues. This podcast was made possible through the generous donations of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre. The podcast was recorded in creative studios at the Royal Children's Hospital. If you'd like to find out more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, look us up on our website, rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. And remember to come and see us at our conference, which we have every year in September. Essential Ethics be inspired.